I don't think we um, did a good job of introducing Maureen O'Boyle. So... (laughs) While Joseph is out and about, she um, is a professor at the University of Tulsa, and we are lucky to have this dynamic duo of Anne Raphael and Maureen. Thanks. So this month, what we've been doing is just stepping back to some basics and using a welcoming phrase, set of phrases that some churches use to describe what it means to be a member of a congregation like ours, to be Unitarian Universalist, and that is open mind. We are a church that works very hard to be open-minded. And then I slipped in, we're a church that is dependent on words, that we bind ourselves together in part with words, that we're a church of loving hearts. We work at that really hard. And then we're a church of helping hands. So today, what we're going to look at is loving hearts. And, you know, love, love is one of those big things. It has fallen into that category of a word that is so big that it has so many meanings and people try to parse what it means. But I'd say what happens because it is so big, it has become symbolic and therefore becomes useful again because it can be an umbrella meaning so many different things. And I'm going to try and make the case that it is at the core of everything that we do. And I have two images I want you to think about. One is the metaphor, let's, let's assume that we all are working very hard to weave a reasonable, loving, rational, fun life for ourselves. So we're all weavers. And I want to maintain that love, the part love, is that beautiful golden thread that shines that you continue as you're weaving, using your shuttle, pulling the, t- the fabric taut next to the same person who's weaving on the same cloth. We're all weaving the same cloth together. But that love is going to be this golden thread that gets woven through it. And when you see the whole cloth, there may be a whole bunch of different patterns and colors but you can always see that little river of gold, the love that holds it together. So that's one image I want us to hold throughout this time together. And the other is how ubiquitous love is. So it's a lot like air. It's everywhere, can't see it, but without it, we couldn't survive. Need to breathe, need to breathe in the air. But I want to also talk about air as this incredible power. You know, without air moving past that very careful shape of a wing, an airplane couldn't be lifted off the ground or a helicopter. So it takes air, this non-existent thing that we can't see, to move something. It seems impossible. And I think that's how love works. Or if you want to move your wing from horizontal to vertical, if you curve that fabric and make it the shape of a wing, 
It can push a boat around the world. So love is this power, often invisible, interwoven into everything. And it's something we say right at the beginning of our services, love is the spirit of this church. And it's so um, difficult to define and put our fingers on. But if we aren't breathing it, we're dying. So if we're going to use wind as a metaphor, there is an apocryphal story that has truth and is integral to our being Hope Unitarian Church, to our being up here on the hill. And that is, there was a man, his name's John Murray, and he was the oldest of nine, big family, lived in the British Isles, and his family was Methodist, and this was in the 1700s. And um, he had a loving mother. He described, there, he, he kept notes of, these are his autobiographical recollections of his parents. His mother was loving. His father was strict, a Calvinist. And um, there's a funny sentence in his autobiography where he says, you know, it was joyful when my father was gone. <laughs> it was a relief. Um, but he had, so he had these two threads going on in his, the weaving of his life. Um, his father dies while he's young, so he has to step up as the oldest and the oldest son and help take care of the family, go to work. Um, and he also is moved to preach. So he's preaching while he's also working and trying to take care of the family. And in that period in England, there happens to be some preachers who are not teaching the uh, Anglican Church's dogma. They're pushing up against other ideas. The Reformation has happened, and that Pandora's box of other theological ideas has already been opened, and it's all flying around. And he's interested in... He's actually drawn to to the very rigid Calvinist theology... But he's so rigid that uh, he gets kicked out of being Methodist. <laughs> Get that. He ends up going to London, marries, preaches, and hears other radical ideas that start pulling him towards the notion, begin to question, what is salvation? And that's not something we talk about often because we tend to be people of the here and now and the question of salvation is about some future we don't know anything about. But back then it was a big deal. What motivates you to be good? And if you aren't good in this life, you might go to hell. So there was a lot of pressure to be good because of something unseen. He has dreadful experiences in London. His infant son dies. His wife dies. He's working but struggling to make a living, gets thrown into debtor prison, and learns that four of his siblings have died. 
So he has a relative that is able to get him out of debtor's prison, and he's depressed, as you might imagine, devastated, and thinks, all I want is to crawl under a rock for no one to see me, no one to know me. I'm never going to preach again. What can I do? And he decides to hightail it on a ship to the colonies where he can start again, start afresh, not be a preacher, not be pushing against the powers of the state, not be pushing against the religious authorities, and deal with his grief. And I want to stop right there because we talk about theology as if it's something incredibly rational, and I think our life experiences and how much sorrow and grief and trauma and joy and love we've experienced all play into what we believe and how we operate in this world. Just a side note for us to consider as we listen to someone's story about, well, what do you believe? Why do you believe that? And that we are accepting of everyone having so many different life experiences. That's why we make room for so many different beliefs and people being on different parts of their path or busy weaving their fabric of life that we're all in different places. So he gets on a, um, I think it's a schooner, hand in hand, and they travel across the ocean, and he's headed to New York City. But oh, those winds, that wind, that, that air that is capricious, blows them south of New York City to New Jersey. And this is where the story, if it hasn't been a bit fantastical, gets even more so and becomes legendary. So they are blown south and blown um, onto a, a sandbar. So, that, so they can't make it to shore. First, they can't make it to where they're going, and they can't make it to shore at all. And where they happen to have landed is a place called Good Point, New Jersey. Um, The captain, because he's younger, he's now, he's in his 20s, sends him ashore and others to make contact with uh, whoever might be on land and get some provisions so that they can weather this and await a change in weather so that they can get off being aground and get on to New York City. And lo and behold, who should he come to but the farmer who owns that piece of land, his name is Thomas Potter, and he is a devout Christian. And what he's done is on his piece of land, he has built a chapel. And what he does is he invites itinerant preachers to come preach. So when he finds out who this young boy is who's landed on his property, he says, oh, well, you have to stay till Sunday and you have to preach in my chapel. And he's like, no, (laughs) I'm starting over. I'm not preaching ever again. No one knows here that I am a preacher. I am not doing this. In fact, the minute the wind changes, we are out of here. He says, well, well, Okay, if the wind doesn't change, would you consider? (laughs) A farmer that knows his weather, I think. Farmers and sailors, they're the two that know it the best. Okay, okay, so the wind hasn't changed, and on Sunday he indeed preaches. And that 
sermon that day is considered the start of universalism in America. What's interesting is he wasn't exactly preaching universalism at that moment. He evolved, but anyway. So he preached, and the apocryphal part is after he preached, after the service was over, the wind changed, and they could carry on their way. And that's what he did. But he was changed by that experience, and so was the farmer. So Murray made it to New York City, preached there, and then began preaching up and down the East Coast, a message that evolved into universalism, into the belief that God would not be so damning and hateful that he would condemn people to hell that everyone ultimately had to be saved. And then if I think about it, like, okay, if my wife died and my child died and my siblings died, I'd be wondering where they went. And it would be heartbreaking to imagine them going to hell. So I can see how that thinking would evolve for him and for everyone, even contemporary preachers who've preached a very dogmatic Theology have said, wait, this does not make sense that those who may not have have exposure to certain teachings or it does not make sense that for an eternity they would be damned. So this is interesting to us because that universalist message begins to evolve to talk about what does it mean to be in this life? What does it mean to be saved in this life? Not, not some unknown hellish imagination in the future that we can't put our fingers on, but what does it mean to be saved right now? And a lot of people have said, well, what it looks like is when love comes into your life when that golden thread is woven in, and I'm not talking just about romantic love, but all the different ways love can transform you, and you can do the simplest simplest little stitch and change someone's life with compassion or love. So what we should notice is we call ourselves Hope Unitarian Church. And I haven't had a discussion. I would love to hear more of the story. I know there was a thoughtful discussion about how do we name ourselves when the church was first founded um, almost 50 years ago. And it was after the Unitarians and the Universalists had gotten together and said, okay, we are one. But this church said, no, no, we don't want that word universalist. But I don't think it was a rejection of love. Those of you who were there will have to fill us in because that has not been my experience of this church. But I do, we, we are part of a, uh, an association that uses both Unitarian and Universalist. And both of those have historical roots in your relationship to how you define God. God is one, Unitarian, and God saves all, Universalist. But I think over time, Universalism has come to me to mean that we really have to imagine the best of everyone. I'll get to that. I'll come back to that. Because uh, the board had a retreat. I hope I'm not jumping the gun. 
But the board looked at um, our, our values, our core values. And the core value is not love, but I want to say acceptance. That's not it either. It's um, tolerance. No, it's reason, integrity, and tolerance are our three core values. And so the board had an interesting discussion about, does that, are those big enough? And they came up with a whole other set of words, and I, I am certain that this year we will end up talking about whether reason, integrity, and tolerance are big enough, or they may, they may still fit us just fine. But that tolerance is the, the word that implied the golden thread that we're weaving or the wind that, that lifts us. And the board said, hmm, we think there are a whole bunch of other words that might be more powerful, more direct. They didn't settle on one, but they looked at love. And they looked at acceptance and connection and caring and respect and interconnectivity. And then we talked a few weeks back about our ancestors, our Unitarian ancestors, used the word affection and affectionate a lot all to describe what is it that holds us together, what is it that not just holds us together, but is the driver for our behavior with each other. Um, and I'd say what, what, what our church tries to do, if we could take, they aren't opposites, but they have to be held together, and that is reason and love. Reason isn't infallible, but oh, we are lost without it. And love isn't infallible, but oh, we are lost without it. And if the two aren't put together and tempering each other, this isn't theological, but we're a mess. <laughs> we're a mess. So the second reading, the one that talks about all the different people that might come to our church, an exercise that I had the board do, and I think I'm going to ask us to do it, is to consider being someone else. I think we have a sense of what it means to be loved and to love someone in our own skin, in our own set of experiences. But just for a moment, I'd like you to consider a skin color. Really, I want you to stop and think of your... You, you, I want you to pick a name for this other person. This other person is going to be a different gender. So if you are Sam, I want you to imagine Sally. And if you are Sue, I want you to imagine Tom. If you are white, I want you to be have a skin color that's dark. Figure out what culture are you from. Are you from East India? Are you African American? Are you Haitian? Are you Hispanic? If you're a Republican, I want you to pick a different political party. Be Democrat, Independent, Libertarian, and if you're a Democrat, I want you to pick a different persuasion, a different political connection. If you're young, if you're under 30, I want you to imagine being over 70. Imagine some other age for yourself. Imagine if you are able bodied that you're not, and if you're not able-bodied or struggled with some other disability, 
I want you to imagine that you are free of that. And we've all parked our cars there. Some of us had to walk. Some of us had to ride our bicycles. Some of us, yeah, let's do the economic thing too. If you have savings and are comfortable, imagine that you weren't sure if your car would make it up the hill. Because all these experiences affect how we imagine love to look like what we need, the love we need. And it also affects the love we're able to give out. Are you able to be loving when you are really struggling with basic needs? So just for a second, I think we may come back to this over the year. I actually had the board, I assigned them specific personas and I'm going to ask them to come back and visit them as they discuss a topic or make a policy change. But as part of that hospitality, hospitality is, is maybe one of the first demonstrations of love for a stranger. A willingness to let someone who is different from you in, and not just that, but a willingness to be changed by their differences. That's the other part of hospitality and love that we tend to ignore. It's so much easier to, I'm going to love you. Oh, but if I love you, you're going to change me with your ideas and your experiences, and you're going to make me see things in a slightly different way that I hadn't, and I actually may completely change my perspective and understanding of life. So do you know who you are? Do you have a name? Can you picture how it feels to enter our doors? Are you welcome? Have people come up to greet you? Or have they, as they suggest, if you haven't had a bath in a day or two, are we a little... And it's okay. I think, I think we're going to make mistakes and be awkward. And uh, there, is no perfect, there is no perfect hospitality. But if we aren't always looking at how we're hospitable and loving then we're missing the boat. No, I'm mixing too many analogies. And if, it, if this makes you uncomfortable, because you're like, wait, 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 what about me? I really am a certain way and need certain things. Someone else has picked you to make sure that you are feeling welcome. Don't worry, you're not forgotten. I went to, um, I represented the UUs, and some of you were, he- were there for the vigil they held for Khalid Jabara. And I mentioned that because I was honored to do that and troubled all at the same time. And uh, I've been trying to think, so how does love interweave through that whole terrible tragedy? And So I'll just describe the vigil, if you weren't there. The Jabara family, so his father and mother and siblings and some friends and some cousins, all sat in chairs together facing the parking lot of the Hardesty Library. Just as the sun was setting down, it was cool, it was beautiful. 
uh, and people crowded into the parking lot. Then there was a row of people that had been invited to say something. And they'd made clear we were to stay positive and, uh, and loving, really. And I kept looking over at the family thinking, we think we're helping them, but they're actually providing a service and love for us. I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they sat there in their grief. Grief is so complicated. Um, but they actually were a conduit for the community, letting us, um, Toby Jenkins, who's head of the uh, LGBTQ community here, said, apologize, said, I'm sorry we failed you completely. So there were apologies and um, expressions of love. So I started looking for love in that moment, and it was everywhere. But I also am online, and I'm sure you're reading the paper, and we see that terrible picture of the man who murdered Khalid. And I want to know, where is the love for him? Someone taught him to hate. We don't know the whole story, but it's so easy to demonize him. So where's the love? Where's the golden thread in all the ways we now so quickly divide ourselves? He's bad. Well, yeah, it's awful. But do we have enough love in our community to treat him differently and not just lock him away, but see that, like the universalists, that it is possible to save someone? And often that someone who needs saving the most is ourselves. All those times we're dismissive of our own mistakes and our own terrible, I'll use the word sins, all the ways we've sinned throughout our life. Who's going to love and forgive us and help us become better? So that's that, that love as air rushing beneath someone's wings or making that sail move forward. If, we, if all we do is demonize this man, then we've missed the boat. And it's hard. It's the hard work we do here, the mistakes we make with each other. How do we get back to the love and say, okay, I'm learning. (laughs) I'm learning all the time. Making mistakes every step of the way. We went to a a training workshop, and the great word they taught us was experifail. That's what we need to keep doing with love is experifail. I think I'm being hospitable to you, but what I just said actually... Um, hurt your feelings. So I have to figure out how to get back to love with you. And as our different personas, what would be most loving to you if you came to Hope Church? What would be most helpful? And sometimes love means saying no. No, that's not appropriate. No, that's not loving. No, you can't say that to me. Tough love. So I think our task in having loving hearts and embracing the universalism in our association and our tradition and our church, even though we don't use the word universalist, is to always be looking for that golden thread or how you can put that golden thread into the situation or how you can adjust that wing or that sail 
So it will catch that strong wind of love and move things forward. Love is the spirit of this church. May it be so.